If you would, please take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. In 1 John 5, we read in verses 16 and 17, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. As John brings this epistle, this letter, to a close, we've seen it's an epistle that rests on the foundation of the gospel, the incarnation, and that God is light. He has presented three tests for testing the genuineness of whether or not a person is a Christian or whether or not their teaching is correct. The three tests are obedience to God's commands. Secondly, love of God and love of one fellow, one's fellow brothers and sisters. And thirdly, belief or faith that Jesus is the Son of God. In the beginning of chapter 5, he combines these three tests together. And then it is followed by an interesting section of about three witnesses in verses 6, 7, and 8. Uh, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The three witnesses are water, blood, and the Spirit. These all, in reality, point to the testimony of the Father. The water refers to the baptism of Jesus, the blood, his death, and the Spirit who was poured out on the day of Pentecost. We saw last week how that when Jesus was baptized, when he came out of the water, uh, people heard a voice from heaven uh, saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. But at his death, we don't hear any voice. We don't have God the Father saying anything. But the reality is, his actions speak louder than words in that he raises him from the dead. And as Peter said on the day of Pentecost, he has made him both Lord and Christ. Also, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And this is the third witness. There's the baptism, there's the death of Jesus and his resurrection, and then there is the pouring out of the Spirit. In verses 10 through 12, John describes the results of this, um, which is pretty straightforward. If anyone believes in the Son of God, he or she has the testimony in his or her heart, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Finally, in verses 13 through 17, John writes about assurances. In verse 13, the assurance of eternal life. In verses 14 and 15, the assurance that when we pray, our prayers are heard and answered generally. Okay? But now, in what I read at the beginning of the sermon, in verses 16 and 17, John gives a specific illustration and an actual a limitation to our prayers. We shouldn't imagine, I can pray anything I want and God will answer my prayer in the affirmative. Um, no, that's not the case. But something he does also is he reminds us that we have responsibilities here and now. Um, now that we're the children of God, perhaps the tendency is to be looking ahead to the future when we will be with the Lord Jesus forever uh, in heaven. We will be uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. That is true, but we still have responsibilities here. 
So in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray. That is, you have an obligation. You have a responsibility. And God will give him life. There are two types of sin mentioned here. We looked at this briefly at the end of the sermon last week. The sin that does not lead to death and the sin that leads to death. Some have argued that these two categories are the forgivable sins, the ones that don't lead to death, and the unforgivable sins, those that do lead to death. And I don't think that's right. I don't see that. Because we have two examples of individuals in the New Testament who committed sins and they ended up dying. It led to death. Um, the first I read about last week, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied and God struck them both dead. And then some of the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 11, who in fact abused the Lord's Supper by not waiting for others, and the others are usually the lower class, the poorer ones, it's the rich ones who are sort of going ahead. And because of that, as Paul puts it very politely, they are now asleep. That is that the Lord had taken their lives. Um, if lying and not being considered of others are sins unto death, I think we're in serious trouble. I mean, come on. That's, this is a, these are common sins to believers and unbelievers alike. John does not say that these sins cannot be forgiven. Okay. That certain ones can be forgiven and these other ones that lead to death cannot be forgiven. Jesus said there is only one sin that could not be forgiven, and that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. That when the Spirit is working, you say, oh, that's actually Satan who is doing that. That is the one unforgivable sin. And neither of the two examples in the New Testament of people who sinned and died are blasphemy. One is lying, the other one is a lack of consideration. The issue is not forgiveness or the absence of forgiveness. I mentioned several things last Sunday, and I mentioned it here again at the beginning, that should guide our understanding of what John is talking about. First of all, John does not give us specifics. And boy, we really wish he had, but he does not give us specifics. He doesn't give us a list. Okay, these are the sins that don't lead to death, and these are the sins that lead to death. He does not do that. Secondly, the prayer that he talks about has to do with physical death. Okay, not spiritual death, because we're all, either you are alive or you're dead. And if you're dead in trespasses and sin, you're on your way to hell. But once you are saved, you are brought to life, and you cannot lose that. Okay, so what he's talking about here is physical death, not spiritual death. Thirdly, these are mentioned in the context of God answering prayers. That's what John just mentioned in verses 14 and 15. So, uh, he wants us to know that when we pray, God hears and answers us. And this is not, well, there's something we should pray about when someone commits a sin and we know about it. And if somebody commits a sin and we know about it, but we think, boy, that's a really, really bad sin. And so I'm going to pray that God will kill them, that it will lead to death. And John says, no, that's not something you should do. A couple more things, and I didn't mention this last week. The person in question is a believer. When you see a brother who commits a sin, okay? This is someone who is a Christian who commits a sin. It's not an unbeliever, okay? And lastly, the issue 
is love. There are three tests. We've seen that. Obedience, love, and belief. If we love our brothers and sisters, we will pray for them that God would in fact deliver them. I think to pray that God would kill them is not a sign of love. Boy, we'd be a lot better off if this person were gone. Is really not a sign of any type of affection. If you'll allow me, I'm going to digress a bit here and look at what the New Testament says about prayer in general that I think will help us, I hope, get a better handle on this passage. There's a passage in James chapter 5 in which he closes his letter, which is actually a sermon, but he closes it with an extended portion on prayer. Uh, If you want to look at James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18, he talks about prayer. In verse 13, the praying individual. If someone is in trouble, he should pray. Then you have the praying elders, that if someone has, in fact, fallen ill, that the elders, and they call the elders, and they anoint him, and they pray, and he will be healed, and his sin forgiven. Interesting enough. Then you have praying friends, we pray for one another, and then the example of Elijah, the praying prophet. Uh, let me read to you these, these verses. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I think that certainly connects with what we're seeing in 1 John 5. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. It's a very strong passage, I think, strong connections with what we're seeing in 1 John 5. But what does the rest of the New Testament say about prayer? First of all, faith is an important aspect of prayer. Hebrews 11.6 Anyone who comes to him, that is to God, must believe that he exists. You can't pray and say, God, I'm not sure you're there. I'm not sure I believe in you, but I'm going to pray anyway. No, the prayer involves faith. In Mark chapter 9, we have the story of Jesus healing the boy with an unclean spirit. And the father says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus answers, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Imperfect faith, perhaps even a lack of faith, but there is a seed of faith there. The second thing I think we see about prayer in the New Testament is that oftentimes we don't know what we should pray for, either through a lack of knowledge or a lack of wisdom. We just don't know. Paul wrote about this. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. The third thing we see is that God's Response is not limited by our faith. We should not imagine, oh, God cannot answer my prayer because I didn't have enough faith. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. God 
God can do far more than we ask or that we imagine. And lastly, I would say that the majority of our prayers are resting in God, that we rest in God. That is, he knows what's best. And so we come and we have petitions, we have needs, but at the end of it, it's you know what's best. Father, we commit these things to you as one who knows best. But maybe we need to back up even a bit more and go back to something more basic. What is prayer? What is prayer? Um, Living when and where we do, I think most people, even many Christians, see prayer as a means to an end. You want to get something, you better pray. Or they see it as a way to improve your well-being. You want something, you ask God in prayer, and you will get what you want. We have seen before that prayer is a dialogue. It is a conversation. God begins the conversation and we respond in prayer. This is critical because most of the time we think I begin the conversation and then God must respond to me. No, God speaks first and he did at the creation. Let there be light. And we respond in prayer. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through circumstances. And we respond in prayer. God is a conversing God. We have Father, Son, and Spirit. Conversation going on between the three of them. It's not something that he created us, so now I can have somebody to talk to. No. God is a conversing God, a dialoguing God. And he calls us to enter into the conversation in prayer. If you're in James chapter 5, there are two more verses in the book. Um, And one might say that they continue the thought of prayer, even though in a different different way. James 5.19, My brothers, if any one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It is interesting that in verse number 13, he says, if you're in trouble, you should pray. But beginning in verse number 14, it is the idea of praying for one another, mutual care and love for one another. So somebody is sick, they call the elders, the elders come and they pray. In verse 16, there is a reconciliation between, if you've offended someone, there's a reconciliation between them. And here in verses 19 and 20, one of the brothers, one of the sisters, has begun to wander away from the faith. And you just don't say, well, you know, we, we, thought, we thought that they were one of us, but I guess we're going to have to let them go. No, you in fact are concerned for them and you pray for that person. Verse number 20, you actually save that person from death. It's interesting that in the earlier cases, it's where somebody has a specific need, and in many cases, they ask you to pray for them. In verses 19 and 20, the person wandering away may not even be aware. Oh, I'm wandering away from the Christian faith. But brothers and sisters who see that, pray for that person and try to bring them back. So this is a scenario. Someone within the congregation okay, has wandered from the truth and has decided, in verse number 20, to walk in the error of his way. Okay. 
Truth is not simply something up in your head. Truth is how we live. Paul told Titus the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It is that which shapes our behavior. Truth is a living thing. It isn't simply a bunch of facts that are written down. It is to change our living. What James writes is not, I think, of someone who is, has fallen into heresy or someone who is living in sin. It might actually be both. But it is someone who is unaware of what is happening. Then you have the rescuer, the person who says, Oh my goodness, this brother, this sister is wandering away from the faith. The elders are not mentioned here. They're mentioned earlier. This is just somebody in the congregation. You see somebody wandering away from the faith. And you go after that person. The rescue is a matter of life and death. And as it puts it, you save him from death. Every church is to be a place of truth and holiness. And every member is to hold and live the truth. It is to shape the way that we live. So we are to be watchful all the time for, and to care for one another. Just think about yourself. Don't think about anybody else right now. Think about yourself and how easy it is to slip away from a full commitment to God. How easy that is. Now imagine if that's the case for you. Why would you think it's different for anyone else in the church? And so we're not the Gestapo, we're not secret police keeping an eye on people. We are loving each other and recognizing by God's grace if someone is beginning to leave the truth. James says you will save that person from death. If you do so, James says, you cover, you will cover their sins. This is something we find in the Old Testament, beginning with Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they tried to cover up themselves with fig leaves, but God covered them with skins. In both cases, it was a matter of sin. They had sinned and therefore they needed to be covered up. Then when you come uh, to the Passover, the first Passover, they were to put blood on the doorpost and on the mantle and so that the angel of death would pass over them. In the Ark of the Covenant, on top of it is the mercy seat. It is the covering. Okay. Then we come to the New Testament and we find that when a person comes to faith in Christ as Savior, it is not simply one that whose sins are forgiven, but in fact all of their sins are are covered, all of their sins are forgiven. As we sang in the, in the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, that all our sins have been nailed to the cross. And then Peter says something fascinating in his first letter. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. The idea being that because of the love that we have for each other, when we happen to know that someone has done something they shouldn't do, that they have sinned, we quietly keep it under wraps, but we speak to them about it. We go to that person and seek to save them from death. 
This raises a lot of questions. I thought only God could forgive sins. I thought only God could, in fact, cover our sins. Um, Why is it that James seems to indicate that we can do that? Well, that's not what James is saying. And in fact, it is only God who can forgive sins. But we should act in love as though we could. We cannot convert someone, but we can work toward their conversion. We cannot save someone from death, but by God's grace, we can strive, we can pray for them, we can engage in spiritual warfare. We see Satan is trying to take this one away. We can pray for them. This is what we can, in fact, do. So, if we go now back to 1 John 5, we should have a strong sense of mutual care. It is reflected and demonstrated in love. If we see someone commit a sin that does not lead to death, we should pray for that person and God will give the person life. On the other hand, John lets us know there is a sin that leads to death. I find it fascinating. John does not forbid praying for someone who commits a sin that leads to death. He doesn't say, you cannot do that. It's wrong for you to do that. Rather, he advises, that's not, that's not something you should do. It is his advice. Because, he writes in the very next verse, all wrongdoing is sin. The sting of death is sin. We all sin. And which one of us is to know whether or not that sin will lead to death? Ananias and Sapphira lied. Who has not lied? We're all guilty of that. So we don't know what sin leads to death. Um, So, if we see someone who commits a sin, we should pray for them. Because we love them. Because they are our brothers and sisters. We shouldn't say... Lord, I saw someone doing something or I've heard that someone has done something and I think our church, their community, their family, I think the world would be better off if they were dead. No. We should pray for them and God will give them life. Okay. Let's look at the last few verses here as John brings his letter to a close. He has three assertions. Three affirmations and then an exhortation. The three uh, assertions in verses 18 to 20. 1 John 5, 18 to 20. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are the children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You'll notice that in each of these verses, it begins with the two words, we know. So he's making this affirmation, this assertion. Okay. Verse 18, the first assertion actually looks like it's three. Anyone born of God does not continue in sin. Uh, The one who was born of God, that is the Lord Jesus, keeps him safe. 
and the evil one cannot harm him. It's the first part of this verse that really is a bit troubling. Anyone born of God does not continue in sin. I think we're more comfortable with what we read in the prayer of confession today, what Paul wrote in Romans 7. For what I do not, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. It's like, wait a minute, Paul. John says that Christians don't continue sinning, and Paul, you seem to be saying that, in fact, we do. John tells us that someone who is a child of God does not continue in sin. That is, does not persist in or habitually sin. One writer put it this way, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. They cannot live together in harmony. I think we could wish that this were the case, that we sin far more often than we would care to admit. But why is it that someone who is a child of God does not continually sin? The one who is born of God, that is the Lord Jesus, keeps him safe from sin. The only begotten one keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him or her. We may be under attack from demonic forces, but it is the Lord Jesus who keeps us safe. The second assertion is in verse number 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. You'll notice that here he includes himself. We are children of God. And by contrast, the world is under the power of the evil one. I would point out that John does not say that the world is of the evil one, as we are children of God. And yet, before we get too excited about that, earlier in chapter 3, he says, who, he who does what is sinful is of the devil. Here at the end of this letter, he's been writing, warning people against false teachers. John reminds his readers of the conflict. There is a conflict between us and the world, and the world is under the power of the evil one. Finally, we have the third assertion in verse number 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know, know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now John has come full circle. He returns to what he said at the beginning, affirming who Jesus is. He is the Son of God who has come. And what he has done, he has given us understanding. What he has enabled us to do, that we may know him who is true. And finally, he is the true God and eternal life. Here we find the most definitive and unambiguous statement regarding Jesus as God. Jesus is God. And for the false teachers who were going around, they were saying, no, he was really a wise man and a prophet named and maybe even the Christ spirit came on him, but Jesus was just a man. And John says, here it is. Here it is that he is God. Now we come to the very last verse of this book. And I don't know about you, but 
it almost seems that somebody has made a mistake and put this verse here in this book. Look at verse number 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. For the first time since chapter 3, John addresses his readers as dear children. It's a tender and affectionate way for him to write them. But why does he say, keep yourself from idols? It's the first time. It's the first time in this whole letter that idolatry, idols, has come up. These things have not come up at all. Why does he end his letter this way? There's not even a, you know, you're in my prayers or uh, greet so-and-so. It's just keep yourself from idols. I think it is a powerful way to end his letter. And I think the shock of it should cause us to think more deeply. Idolatry is, I think, one of the easiest sins for us as human beings to commit. John Calvin wrote centuries ago, Our heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts are putting out idols moment by moment. That which we put in the place of God, that which comes between us and God, that which we put our faith in, instead of in God. Idolatry is not a question of orthodoxy. It sort of is. But prim- more than that, it is a test of love. In the Old Testament, we are told that idolatry is, in fact, adultery. If one spouse cheats on another spouse, we call that adultery. Idolatry is precisely that. We are the children of God, and when we decide we want something else to be our God, then we are guilty of unfaithfulness to God. One of the dangerous things about idols is that when they first show up in our lives, on our radar, they don't seem to be bad. They don't necessarily seem to be wrong. So we don't think that deeply about them. We just sort of accept that that's the way we're going to be thinking from now on. They creep in. They pervert our priorities. And so it becomes difficult to spot them. Sometimes they even look very Christian. And we can even use Christian language to dress them up. But they are dangerous. And here, after five chapters of writing and warning his readers, John puts a period, an exclamation mark on this, and says, keep yourself from idols. They're so common in our world that it almost takes, it's almost as though you have to wear special glasses to see them. They're right there in front of us and we fail to recognize them. Um, Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York City, has written about this. And he argues that there are four common idols for believers. The first is comfort. The second is approval. The third is control. And the fourth is power. 
For comfort, I think we will do almost anything. For approval, we will pay, even if it means that we lose independence. We're dependent upon other people's approval of us. And as a result, we become cowards. We don't stand up for what is right because of the idol of approval. What about control? Control causes us to worry when we begin to feel that we're losing control. We're not spontaneous. We don't want to be. We're worried because we want to be in control. And what about power? Power leads to anger. Look at the American political situation today. And is not power the idol that people are worshiping at? Keep yourselves from idols, John tells us. So we come to the end of 1 John. John is preparing his readers against false teachers and false teaching, and he is challenging false teachers and their teachings. He has three tests. We've seen this over and over again because he repeats them at least three different times in different ways. Obedience to God's commands, loving the brothers, and believing, having faith in the Lord Jesus. But at the end of it all, after having written this powerful letter, John says, keep yourselves from idols. It's a danger we all face, and it's a danger that many of us do not recognize. We think it's not a problem for us. And if that's the way you think, then you are in great danger. Remember, some years ago at a Bible study, um, one of the questions that came up uh, from a guest was, um, do you think that we have idols? Because to this person, an idol is an image, a statue, something tangible. Well, I don't think anyone would ask that question today. After all, we have a TV show called American Idol. We know what idolatry is. And yet somehow we think we are immune. That immunity, by the way, I think is an idol in itself. We think that we cannot be touched. It is wrong. And John, at the end of it all, John, what do you want to tell us? (laughs) You've written all of this. What do you want us to know? Keep yourselves from idols. Do not put something in the place of God in your life. It may sound very good. It may sound very Christian. But we are to worship God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And we know this because God sent his Son into the world. And John says, by the way, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. We know, we testify, he is the Son of God. There is one true God. Don't let an idol take you away from that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we can talk to you in prayer because you have spoken to us through your word. You've actually been speaking to us all along. 
we just have tuned you out we're not listening and the idea that we should pray for somebody else sounds like a good idea but if they fall into sin well that makes us uncomfortable it seems like we're being judgmental but if we love one another if we care for one another we will in fact do that But if we have the idol of approval, we don't want people to be offended. We want them to like us. Then we may not do what we should be doing. We're to pray for one another. Every day we should pray for one another. We don't see each other through the week, but you're there with us. We should hold each other up and pray with the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Do not lead my brothers and sisters into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In a world that is filled with idols, by your grace, may we keep ourselves from idols. May we pray for one another. We pray for the churches in this area, Southern California. Some seem to be under attack. Pray that you would keep them safe from the evil one. Protect their pastors and their wives, their families. Protect their members. And by your grace, may we be an example of love to the world around us. May the light of Christ shine through us. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us. Thank you for loving us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.